So this is Battle Lines, Creation and the Three Rebellions. This is part six, The Sons of God. So we're going to get a running start. Just back up one lesson. Okay? Okay. So, in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as we've discussed, God creates mankind, male and female, as his imagers, and grants them dominion over the creatures of the sea, the sky, the heavens, and the earth. So in this material realm... Mankind is God's authorized imager in all three domains. Heavens, earth, and sea. A lot of responsibility, huh? A lot of responsibility. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Verse 4 <coughs> But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Remember, he's a liar from the beginning. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. <clears throat> Excuse me. So as we discussed last week, this was the first rebellion. And in this first rebellion, the man made from the earth and given life to represent God the creation seeks to be like God through his own rebellious action. Man moved from imaging through identity to grasping an independence. Man moved from imaging through identity to grasping an independence. To being in the image of God to trying to become God independently. This was a result of the assault on God's image from below. What these attacks are about is the image of God and recapturing the image of God in you is much of what Jesus accomplished. And reviewing these three rebellions, see we start at the cross and you got to. But most of us in there, and the story's just getting started. Our death problem wasn't the only thing Jesus fixed, but if you think your death and sin problem is the only problem there is, you miss the glory of who He is and what He accomplished. 
So this first rebellion is, is a reach. All of these rebellions are a reach outside of the authorized zones given by God. Earth was given to man. He was given dominion. And something from beneath comes up to try to corrupt the image. Why from beneath? Because it's the serpent. It's the serpent. Isaiah 27 verse 1. In that day, the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And to understand that this assault comes from the Tanim, the, the, the Nakash, the serpent, who is the dragon, the Tanim, the great sea monster of chaos, is an assault on God's image from below because God cast him to Sheol, to the depths. So his place in the garden is way out of bounds. This is not a natural creature hanging amongst the bushes and the trees, a boa hanging out in the tree. This is the mythical dragon of chaos coming out of the depths and then whispering to the woman, did God really say? Oh, that's not the truth. He's hiding good things from you. Why was he allowed to even come up? That's a great question. And why was he allowed to come up? And it's a great question. My, my only response is, is that man was given dominion yes. mm-hmm. to guard and keep the garden. So, now, again, as I shared, there's no way you can minimize the fall of man. But the fall of man does not account, the fall of man alone does not account for the state that this world is in. It accounts for a lot, <laughs> but it doesn't account for the state we're in. That's also what these three rebellions are about. All three of these rebellions seek to twist God's intent when He said, let us make man as our imagers, in our likeness, and let them have dominion. And the conflict is to twist that identity. That's the conflict. That identity is recaptured in Christ Jesus. I'll stop before I start preaching. But just so just so we get a flavor of, you know, the effect, the impact, because the impact is immediate. I mean, we already talked about the fact that they both knew they were naked, and then they they began to clothe themselves with the work of their own hands, sewed aprons out of fig leaves. God made them robes out of the skin of an animal, not out of wool. He killed something and ripped its hide off and covered man when he sent them out of the garden. So let's talk about before and after. I mean, before the fall, man had life. Genesis 2 7. So, so I'm really impacted by that idea, real quick. Which one? Like, like man in the garden, we can suppose that he wasn't killing animals in the garden at that time. Correct. So that would have been like a shocker. Like, yes. Like they would have been like, what? Yeah. This? Well, everything was given. Yeah. Well, the fact that they were that they were wearing the skin of an animal, though, I mean, like if, if you were clothed in glory, but then, right, I'm thinking now you're taking one of those and you're 
putting that on me, what does that says about me? And just wondering how maybe they experience what I'm saying. But yeah, in the taking of an animal and sacrificing it that they would be clothed, we have a, a prototype of substitutionary sacrifice that carries through. It, and that's a whole other study on its own right. You know, just what he clothed them in. It carries all the way over to the priest's robes in the Hebrew. So, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God said, of every tree of the garden you, you may freely eat. It's, a, it's an emphasis in the Hebrew which basically says, eat to your heart's content. Uh, they had access to the tree of life. And 3.22 tells us that the tree of life would have, would have maintained their life perpetually. They had what we call conditional immortality. After they have death. The day you eat thereof, you will surely die. And this is reiterated in, in, through uh, Genesis 3, verses 19 through 24. God says, lest they reach out and eat of the tree of life, and so he drives them out of the garden. And Romans 5, verses 12 through 17, you know, death came through Adam. Okay? Genesis 2.16. Eat to your heart's content. This is, a, this is a place where Adam heard this firsthand from the Lord. Eve, that's not her name yet, but the woman, she quotes this back in response to the serpent. She leaves the emphasis out. She leaves the eat to your heart. There's eat there, but not eat to your heart's content. There's not the freely eat. That's reflected in the Hebrew. After uh, they eat in pain and sweat amongst the thorns and thistles, out of the sweat of your face, you know, in pain you shall eat of the land, right? Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. Genesis 1, 28, they're blessed with fruitfulness. And in Genesis 3, 16, she has pain and childbearing. Here's one that I... I what, 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 what does that... Does that they didn't have. They weren't fruitful before uh, the, the fall because they didn't have children. They were blessed with it, though. Be fruitful and multiply. He blessed they, them. They could have. Sure. Right? Okay. But the fact that he tells her after the fall that now in pain you shall yeah. you shall bear children yeah. seems to indicate that it might not have been such a painful process before. Yeah. Right. Right. So the next one is one I, that I've. You know, I, I'm guilty of parking on quite a bit, but I think it needs to be parked on. Because before the fall, well, I'm not there yet. I got ahead of myself. That's the next slide. Anyhow, he takes them, he makes man, he makes them out of the ground, and then he puts him in the garden. He's taken up to Eden. And remember, we talked about in Ezekiel 28 how that's the mountain of God. So he's taken up into Eden. Okay? After it, they're driven back down to the ground. Still Genesis 3, verses 23-24. So this is, this is very, very drastic change, very quick change from man's sin. From his sinless state to now his sinful state. This is the place I park sometimes, and I'm going to park again. The dynamics and the changes in the husband and wife relationship. So again, you have the before and the after. Well, before, they're co-regents. Let us make man in our own image, male and female, created he them. 
And He said to them, have dominion. But after the Lord tells the woman, He will dominate you. Now, the, the most English versions have that as He will rule over you. A lot of fundamentalist evangelicals park on this as, as this is the blessed status quo of a man um, lording over a household. That's the way it should be. That's not what the verse is saying. This is the result of sin that he will dominate over her. Adam names all the animals. And, but there's no counterpart found for him. And God says, I will make a, a helper for him. When we say helper, like if you have a mechanic and a mechanic's helper, that sounds like a subordinate thing. But a lot of times, this word helper in Scripture refers to God. <laughs> God helping you. This is not a subordinate thing. This is a fulfilling counterpart. I will make that which he lacks to fulfill what he needs. If the edict is be fruitful and multiply, Adam on his own cannot do it. That's just one aspect. Okay? So, before she's the fulfilling counterpart, the meat helper or the adequate helper, right? Genesis 2.18. After he says, you're going to have contrary desires. You're not going to be on the same page. So now there's this struggle uh, in the relationship. When she is presented to him, he says, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. She's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's man, Ish. She shall be Isha. She is me of another form. Because she came out of me. That's her name, Genesis 2.23. We read in Genesis 5.4 that in the day that they were created, their name, their name was Adam. Their name was Adam. But after the fall, Adam calls his Isha, his wife, Sheva. He changes her name. From Isha, who came from Ish. I am the husband, you are the wife. You're the wife that came out of the husband. I have identity of a husband because you are my wife. You have identity as a wife because I am your husband. We are one flesh, identified with each other. After the fall, he names her Shiva. Mother of all living. Now, she's a she becomes a mother, but it's a dynamic relationship change. The dynamic relationship change and that her identity now goes toward the children more than to the one flesh. This is all after the fall. So we go from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4 and we look at Cain's legacy. This is all the result of man's sin. It only takes eight verses away from the garden for humanity to have its first murderer and its first martyr. That's eight little verses. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 8. And Cain kills his brother Abel. Now, we're told in Genesis 4, verse 25, and Genesis 5, verse 3, that Adam was 130 years old 
when Seth is born. And Seth was the son that Shiva got in place of Abel because Cain murdered him. So, within the first century or so of mankind, 130 years at most, okay, it takes mankind at most 130 years, a century and change, to get to the first murder. Okay? Now, we have internal problems before that. We've got anger. (laughs) You know, the brothers aren't, you know. Cain's not not getting along with Abel because he sees Abel being favored as sacrifice being favored. But just think about it. As drastic as the fall is, as drastic as it is to be kicked out of the garden, it takes a century and change before one man kills another. Okay? And then Cain is cursed. The ground's no longer going to provide for him. And... Cain says, that's too much for me, God. That's Everyone's going to see me. They're going to want to kill me. And so then, God sets a mark on Cain. Now, um, in the age of the Western slave trade, this got theologically twisted to say that black skin was the mark of Cain. And that that's why enslaving Africans was a good thing and a rightful thing. And that's a wicked doctrine of demons. Okay? What did Cain's mark result in? Cain's curse. So here Cain kills his brother and God curses the ground. And then God marks him. What's the result of Cain's curse? This is the fall of man. This is Cain who was of the evil one. Okay? (laughs) Well, he's marked by the Lord for protection. I'll put a mark on you, and if anybody touches Cain, they'll have to deal with me, God says. God becomes, Yahweh becomes Cain's personal bodyguard. No one touches this man. Wow. Cain starts building cities. This is the result of the curse. He starts building cities. His descendants become master craftsmen and musicians. And herders. And tent makers. It takes six more generations before the next murder. Okay? Six more generations. Lamech... The seventh from Adam through Cain is also the first polygynist. This is uh, verse 19 of, of Genesis 4. What is a polygynist? You know, he, has, he has two wives. He's the first man with two wives. Polygamy is the general word for anybody who has multiple mates. Uh, married two. Polygynist is a man married to more than one woman. And so here's a man pursuing be fruitful and multiply through his own means. And he uh, killed a young man for wounding him. And it's you know, unclear whether it was just an insult and he killed him. Um, or, but the language of it is that the young man was outmatched. Was outmatched. Oh. Uh, the wording used is, is that he was picking on a youth, basically. And then he, then he boasts, look, if, if Cain's going to be avenged, anybody touches Lamech seven times avenged. 
No one touches me. You know, so this arrogance of murder. But, but note, a century and change before the first one, and then six generations before we hear about another um, horrible rupture. And that, I mean, murder's got to be the biggest rupture in human relations, right? Murder. It's got to be right up there. Okay? I mean, false witness is not good. Adultery is horrible. Right? But murder, thieving's bad. <laughs> murder? It's kind of like final, right? Okay? So that has to be the ultimate breach in human relations when I kill you because I don't like you that much. Right? Six generations it takes. This is fallen man. This is out of the garden man. Rebellious against God man. Sinful man. Six generations for another murder is recorded. Now let's talk about Enoch, the seventh from Adam, through Seth. Now, if you follow the generations, I think you're talking somewhere around 500 years for Enoch to show up in the seventh generation. But understand, Seth comes along, you know, 100 years into the thing. So let's just say the six generations from Cain's side... Give it maybe four centuries. Could you imagine? Could you imagine this planet? 400 years, four centuries, no murders. That's a fallen race, folks. That would be something. That's a fallen race. A fallen race, four centuries, no murders. That would be something. That's kind of... Wow. Huh? I said it would be a beautiful earth. That'd be, that'd be pretty... Be pretty amazing, right? Well, kind of what it says is not that they didn't know murder occurred. Surely they had heard about Abel, but they, they even then they must have had a conscience. They must have said because they could have opened the gates wide. They could have said, "Well, if King did it to Abel, we can just why don't we just do that whenever?" We, but they didn't do that. They. Could you imagine how many people would live in Chicago in 400 years if no one got got murdered? Ooh, sorry, that was it. That was it. <laughs> Anyhow. How much of the earth was populated? I mean, there are all kinds of things we don't know, but I'm just going by the narrative, right? I'm suggesting maybe they had a conscience. Yeah. Do you think they had a conscience? I, I would think they did. Otherwise, there would have been a proliferation. There would have been, yeah. I would think they followed the law of the Lord in the beginning because that's how the earth started. Yeah. God spoke to Adam and Adam... You know, yeah, they're 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 not absent knowledge, yeah, right? So. These guys lived and talked to each other. This is Enoch, the seventh from Adam through Seth. Genesis five, verse twenty-three. Thus, all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So, at sixty-five, Enoch has Methuselah. Methuselah, is Noah's daddy, I think. Anyhow. I remember my genealogies. 365 years. And then God takes him. Hebrews 11.15 By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Okay? So we have, we have Enoch's translation or ascension in Genesis 5. We have it witnessed to in Hebrews 11.5. 
Then we have this note from Jesus' baby brother, Jude. And he writes in verse 14 of his epistle, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones. Oh, by the way, that holy ones? That's, that's the same idea as when um, Paul writes to the holy ones in Corinth, to the holy ones in Rome, in, in Rome, to the holy ones in Galatia. We say saints. The idea is a holy one. A holy one, like these divines that attend God's throne in heaven, holy ones. That's the holy one. 10,000 of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly, all the ungodly of their, of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is a prophecy of Enoch, the seventh from Adam. You will not find it in Genesis. You will not find it in Exodus. You won't find it anywhere from Genesis to Revelation. Where you will find it is in a um, second temple Jewish piece of literature known as the Book of Enoch. And in 1 Enoch, verse 9, we read, And behold, he cometh with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is one of a number of instances, three at least, where this literature is quoted by New Testament writers. Enoch, it belongs to the what's called pseudopedagraphia, which means written under an alias. Uh, it was a very popular genre of the day, but it was held in high esteem. Uh, I think the last church father was, that, that really argued for its canonicity was Tertullian, but he, you know, the majority said no, and he said, okay, I'll acquiesce. All right? It's been known for a long time. Here's the thing. From Abel's murder to Enoch's ascension is at least 857 years. 857 years. In that time span, we have the recording of two murders. Well, if you back up 300 years and just call it 857, I mean uh, 557 years, you're still talking about five centuries and change where we have two murders recorded. Okay? So the fall of man's serious. They're out of the garden. They were conditionally immortal. Now they're mortal. They were uh, one flesh identified by what God had done with them, and now there's conflict in the, in the primary core relationship of the human family, the marital relationship, and it bleeds down to the kids. And yet still, by the testimony of Scripture, in fallen man, you've got a long time with, you know, 
Genesis chapter 6. So we come out of Genesis 5, we come into Genesis 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so now we have an entire other thing transpiring. <laughs> like James coughing. Some terms of interest in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. You have this phrase, sons of God, which is contrasted with the daughters of Adam, the daughters of mankind. We have this term, Nephilim, which means fallen ones in verse, verse 4. And then we have mighty men of old, the Giborim Aser Melolam, which the dictionary of uh, deities and demons, <laughs> which is a very deep reference work on the Bible. <laughs> it exists. It's like 900 some odd pages. In uh, their article on the Giborim, uh, they classify this as a special class of superhuman beings in the antediluvian period. The Giborim. And if you follow the Giborim in the Old Testament, excluding David's mighty men, you find some interesting stuff, which we won't do today. But these are all very peculiar terms that show up in these four verses. I want to concentrate on these sons of God. When the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and then they took, chose of them, you know, any, any of them they wanted for wives. And many of you are familiar with this, um, with this information, but it's good to see it, right? So sons of God, there are, it's the term uh, Beneha Elohim, Bene being son, Elohim is that, is that term that's translated God, right? Beneha Elohim. Genesis 6, 2 and 4. It shows up in Job 1, 6, Job 2, 1, Job 38, 7, and Deuteronomy 32, 8. Okay? Job 1, 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now Job 38 is perhaps the one that's most blatantly lets you know that these sons of God aren't, you know, they're not Sethites. They're not children of Seth, okay? They're not human. Job 38, verse 4. He's, God's asking Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched a line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All the B'nai Elohim. The B'nai Elohim were there at the creation of the earth. They saw it happen. They sang. And they rejoiced when God made the earth. Okay? Deuteronomy 32 is the section of Scripture that, you know, we get this understanding of of God disinheriting the nations and God judging the gods of the nations. 
Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. The number happens to be 70, and it symbolizes complete the entire council. My new King James says, says the sons of Israel. The children of Israel. And the children of Israel translation follows the Masoretic text, which is a whole nother conversation. But the... the uh, it says the Lord's portion is His people. Yeah, the testimony of the Dead Sea Scrolls, older manuscripts, and the Septuagint translation, it's, it's the Benalli. Okay. You also have this term, uh, the Bene Elim, which is, you know, the sons of El, basically. Psalm 29.1, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. That's how the ESV has this translated. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And then you have this term, Bene Elion. Bene Elion, which is Son of the Most High. And that shows up in Psalm 82.6, which is, have I not said, you are gods? Psalm 82, verse 6, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. But because they became corrupt in their leadership over the nations that God sent under them, He said you will die like men. Okay? So suffice it to say, the sons of God in Genesis 6 aren't human. This is not a case of intermarriage between unbelievers and believers. This is a case of Elohim, divine council members, deciding to cohabit with women and they had progeny by them. Genesis 6, verse 5. This is the result. Now, just think about the history we went through, right? Man falls. Man gets kicked out of the garden. Cain kills Abel. Centuries go by. Lamech kills a man. Okay? No. Enoch begins to walk with the Lord after he has Methuselah. 300 years. At, you know, he's 65, he has Methuselah. 300 years, God takes him up. And then we get this little blurb in Genesis 6 about the sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of men, that the Nephilim are there, that the, that the Giborim are there, and this is the result. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is not the state of the fall. This is the state of the second rebellion. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Just think about the dramatic difference in judgment. Man takes of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he gets expelled from the Garden of Eden to live with his wife and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
But the sons of God come to the daughters of men and they begin to have children called fallen ones. And God says, I have to destroy the planet. Mankind becomes so corrupt that every thought is wicked. The gene pool was corrupt, right? Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But not only was not only was the gene pool corrupted, but the influence of the Nephilim and their behavior became a warping. You see, we've gone way past just murder and polygyny. Way past it. Jude chapter three. Ah, Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, so in the context of this, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, watch this language, this is Jude writing, that Jesus, that Jesus who saved the people out of Egypt. Remember when we talked about the angel of the Lord? And he stood before the children of Israel and he said, I took you out of Egypt. And we talked about the angel of the Lord being a a, a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. The second power in heaven, Yahweh, who is not the angel of the Lord, who is Yahweh but not Yahweh. Jude, his brother in the flesh, says, when Jesus brought the people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Each one of these rebellions is a breach of God-designated sphere of influence but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, consider the dragon out of the sea tempting man and in essence murdering him. By bringing him into sin, man loses eternal life. He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Where is, where is the devil now? Free to roam. He's free to roam. These angels are incarcerated. Okay? Yes. Is God just? Yes. yes. Are his scale are his scales of justice evenly weighted? Yes. Well he's got his plan. That's why. He's what? So he has his plan. He has his plan. My point here is... is seem unjust. No. What I'm saying is this judgment is much severer than the immediate judgment on the dragon. Which would seem to indicate that the breach was worse. Okay? Because, because he, almost, he almost ruined all of God's creation except for Noah yeah. and his family. So the comparisons that are drawn, both in Jude and in 2 Peter, which we'll go to next, is with Sodom and Gomorrah and how they went after strange flesh. 
And so, uh, this is, from the angelic side, what would be considered to be on the human side, some of the worst degrading behavior that could be thought of. And the idea here, this conflict is, God says to His divine counsel, let us make man in our image, and then God creates man in His own image, and He grants them dominion over the earth. Well, some of these spirit beings weren't down for that. They don't want to be under God's authorized imager on earth. They'll make their own little images on earth. They'll come down and somehow manage to procreate with women. They did not stay in their own position of authority. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell. And here, English doesn't help us. Because hell is a word we use. Uh, it's a singular word, but it's used to translate a multiplicity of words in Scripture. Yeah, you can use it. Yeah, we can use it to describe a bad day in the office. This one here is actually a, a verb form, cast them down to hell, which I think is tartaru. That's the verb form. Uh, threw them in Tartarus. Oh, what is Tartarus? Well, Tartarus shows up uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. I don't know how many places. I know it shows up once in Proverbs. Uh, it shows up in Job twice, to, once to refer to the sea, I think, that's deep in a deep valley. But the term comes from Greek mythology. That's where the term comes from. Now, Peter, he had, he had all kinds of terms. He could have used Hades. He could have used Gehenna, which is a, uh, a Hebrew word transferred in the Greek. But he didn't use Hades. And he didn't use Gehenna. He used Tartarus, which the Greeks described as far below uh, Hades as Earth is below heaven. Okay? This is where these guys are incarcerated for what they did. But their progeny wasn't incarcerated. Their progeny was drowned in the flood. And their progeny drowned in the flood had nowhere to go. Because they're not really human and they're not really angels. Today, we just call them evil spirits. Second Peter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. These are the spirits in prison that Jesus witnessed to. No! If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then Peter goes on to give several other examples, but he wraps up the application in verse 9 when he says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. There's your point. This is our takeaway from Noah. Noah living in the worst time of humanity. <laughs> God rescues him. God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment 
until the day of judgment. God is just, and He will make it happen. It's like clockwork, man. <laughs> the second rebellion consists of heaven's encroachment of the earth, an attack on the image of God from above. So the first rebellion is an attack on the image of God from beneath, and man of the earth reaching to be like God. Now, these are the little G's reaching down from above to corrupt God's designated imager. But Noah comes off the boat. The earth is cleansed. They come off the boat. And in Genesis 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But you get a couple of chapters into it. And in Genesis 11, verse 1, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The very thing God said for them to do, they are in rebellion, deciding not to. And this is the subject matter of the third rebellion, which we'll get into uh, next so, week. So this question keeps coming up mm -hmm. in my mind as we look at these. When you talk about the angels who left their first estate, you talk about this, where lest we be dispersed. And part of my thought is... Yes, they did these things. Yes, they came to these conclusions. Yes, probably it was back then as it is now. It's, uh, you know, our battle's not flesh and blood, but against spiritual and principality. My question is, do we think they were actually really conscious of, for instance, were they making a conscious decision? We are going to defy Yahweh, and we're going to do this, or was it simply, hey, why don't we all hang out and then we can all stay together and we're not just going to get spread out. We'll be stronger if we stay together. The language is defiant. Particularly when they say make a name for themselves. And it involves it involves the theology of the name. Maybe it was a protection thing. Maybe no. The language of the text is defiant. It was, it was absolute defiance toward God. It wasn't just self-preservation of man. It was a rebellion toward God. I mean that's the that's the that's the tenor of the language in the text. I'm fine. I, mean, I just that question keeps coming back to me as we go through in the different scenarios about as things you know happened over time. Yeah, as, as things progress. So this this is the layering. So in the other good, words, was their intent to yeah. define God? So you so you you go you go forward and and now we have the word of God and people are given a choice. We can either follow the Word of God and do what the Word of God says, or we can rebel against it and not, and not accept Jesus as Lord. Right. So, so the good news in this is, or, or what, what I'm endeavoring to understand better and what I'm, what I'm hoping we can all grasp better is the cohesive epic story that this is. That these three major rebellions in Scripture 
are the three primary things that Jesus addressed in the Incarnation. And that our ultimate hope, which is supposed to be the anchor of our soul, winds up being the, the liberation from these afflictions and the replacement of these rebellious divine sons for the revelation, as, as Romans 8 says, of the sons of God. The co-creation is waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. That, that terminology, sons of God, in reference to the holy ones bought by Jesus, is intentional. Um, I'm missing one thing, which is, what are the three rebellions? I haven't gotten a hold of that. The first one is um, man from the earth reaching to be God under the deception of the dragon who came up from the sea. It's an attack or an assault. Uh, the garden or Babylon? Talking about the garden. The garden. The garden. That's the first one. Okay. The first rebellion is an assault on the image of God from below. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk about, okay. This is the second rebellion, which is an assault on the image of God from above. Angels who, what we call angels. The estates, they left they their, their first estate. Uh-huh. And um, in, in, in essence, somehow, uh, you know, grab the hold of some permanence in the physical realm and then, and then the procreate. Third, and then the third one is the Babylon thing? The third one is Babel. That will be the, um, we'll make a name for ourselves thing. Yes. Yeah. Nicholas, right. I wanted to ask you a little clarify. Um, first of all, yeah, I guess in regard to the second rebellion, um, you were referencing Jude and how those angels were incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, so where where did the evil spirits who are out and about the evil spirit realm today? Like where did they come from? I, I don't so know. so the 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 incarcerated spirit beings were the were the were the fallen angels. They cohabited with men. Their children, which Scripture calls Nephilim, or the giants, the Giborim, they, they are hybrid race from, and from, from angelic beings and human beings. So the understanding from the Jewish mindset and, and even um, the early church fathers and the Greek theologians of the, of the church was that they... At death, they had nowhere to go. They wind up in the air. And, that's and so then we... From the flood. That's from the flood. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't speak to after because there, there were... There are... Yeah, there are Nephilim that are in the land in Canaan. They infest Canaan. So, so much of the conquest... This is after the flood. This is after that's the what flood. I was going to ask too because like, I saw this special where they were digging up giants and, and they were like in North America and stuff and they were not... I don't think back from way back. So, I mean, if, if you want, I, I, I can unpack a little bit more of the impact of that in terms of the narrative of Scripture. And uh, simply because the accusation, without this understanding, you know, it's, it's someone would, you know, looks at the Bible, looks at Yahweh and says, you know, Yahweh is just a horrible God. Why would He command you to kill babies? Why, why is Yahweh commanding genocide? What's this whole thing, Joshua, going in and wiping out the land? Yeah. Well, you got to follow the tribe names. you got to follow out what he's exterminating. And, and why he's exterminating. But this, this yeah, conflict that's going on. Their gene pool was corrupted 
And as they, every baby they had was going to end up being an evil spirit after 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 they died. You know? Yeah. So it it's um. And that would would you know what when you look at the behavior um, of these beings and the result of these beings on the earth, and then you look at what we commonly call, without getting too complicated, what we commonly call demons or unclean spirits, um, the, the kinds of things that they do in an individual, they replicate the kinds of perverting activity that happened in Genesis 1-4. through 4, With violence and murder, sexual immorality, um, all these kinds of things. In, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, yeah, in the Gospels, some of the main things they cause are debility, disease, and insanity. So uh, to say someone was crazy was the same as saying that they were they were demonized. Okay, um, I mean, are we not right in saying that he that he's insane and has a demon? John ten. Right. So that, but that's just one layer of the evil spirit realm. Okay. A lot of people will conjure up the evil and bring it out. Well, well there's that. So, so this, this begins to touch upon the mobility of the departed spirits of man. Yeah. Another reason why I, you know, because when you get into a word in, in Scripture, uh, you've read it, uh, perhaps you've seen the term Rephaim, why this world's messed up the way it is now. Yeah, yeah. Primarily. So, um, anyhow, thank God God is God and He can lead us through. And it's a good thing that we're in the kingdom of light where you can see things. The kingdom of darkness is just kind of crazy. Well, even in popular culture, and you can see it all over social media and everything, where today uh, there are people who manifest themselves and, and maybe they'll maybe they'll dress that way or maybe they'll go deeper maybe they'll participate but the point is there's this idea where they seek this sort of communion with the spirit world and some of them go deep in it and they and they of course you know back in the 70s we might have called it channeling or whatever but the point is that the, the, the communion between man and then evil spirits there are some who entertain that and it's like to me it's like it's a form of witchcraft but it's beyond witchcraft it's, mm-hmm. it's become it's almost a sort of an accepted sort of thing and it's it's that lie it's that substitute for that communion that we're supposed to have with the spirit of, cre- of our creator yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? the unknown people that do the that now yeah it's where being really deceived they getting... think it's a good thing and it can be a, a really negative thing. It's become so that prevalent now that I think that's why we're coming real close to the time when the Lord's going to pick up the church. I, you know, I really believe that. I, I don't know if I'll be here when it happens, but I wouldn't be surprised if I'll still be living when it happens. I'm down for that. And I'm, I'm 93. I'll be 93 in a few days. <coughs> to me, though, it... it on a positive note, it speaks to how we should really understand the authority of the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. Yes. Amen. Right. Absolutely. I pray for discernment too, right? Yeah, because you could get spooked. Yeah, you know, this is this. Oh yeah. This, that, yeah. And that's that's why I said, you know, the, the good news in this is that Jesus rectified all this. Yes. He is the rectifier of all yes. this. 
But when you see the... And we've talked about it and talked about it, but the more you see the rectification, the more you'll see it connected to the whole testimony of Scripture, all the components it touches. From the casting out of demons to ruling the nations. And we're kind of taking away from this that Jesus was not ignorant of this whole thing. And in fact, it was part of His mission. Jesus, yeah, yeah Jesus yeah. was the one who ripped the veil off of all of this, writ large. Yeah. When He started casting out demons the way He cast out demons, it was like nothing they'd ever seen before. Amen. They had to resort to saying, well, He's casting out demons by the Prince of Demons because they just didn't get what they That level of authority, they couldn't imagine. No, no, they had no. Not the prophets. So the prophets hadn't even done that, right? I mean, Well, it's... it's um, you know, the, the, closest, the closest I see us getting is, is David's harp. Uh, but they, they have oral tradition and, and there's some psalms that we don't have uh, purportedly written by Solomon that were um, intended for the casting out of demons. And indicated messiahship if someone could do that. So in the chosen, they portrayed Nicodemus as trying to adjure a diamond, with mm-hmm. the diamond demon. Which I'm not even sure I know what adjure e- means. Even in the uh, even in even like in the apocrypha, um, you know, it's it's like uh, in in Tobit, um, Tobias is told by Raphael to burn certain kinds of roots to drive the demon away so the woman he wants to marry doesn't, you know, so he doesn't wind up dying because this woman he wants to marry has a demon attached to her keeps killing all the husbands off. So that involves in all kinds of paganism, use the garlic and the wooden stake and all that kind of... Yeah, I mean, there were all these kinds of different rituals and and means and ways, you know. Well, Lord, I just thank you so much for how you... You've saved us. Amen. Lord, you've saved us. You've you continue to give us mercy. Yes. You've given us grace. You've given us peace and joy. Lord, that we can have fellowship with the saints. Amen. That we can praise your name, that we can lift your name up on high, that we can continue to call out to the name of Jesus in every situation in our lives yes, and know that you will meet our needs. Yes, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for you being our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Thank you, church. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.